I did like guns when I was a kid. I remember that. About the only sport I was ever good at was target sports, archery, and shooting. For the first time, they were going to be able to make guns out of titanium, and they would be very light. So I ordered a 38 titanium revolver. He went bang, 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 and, and didn't seem to appreciate the kickback from the 9mm. I said, stop, stop, stop. The gun was out of control. He was just pulling the trigger out of control of the gun. I cannot live in jail, and I cannot live in hiding. In my apartment in New Orleans, I had a gun to kill myself with. Thank you for tuning in for this special bonus episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. In this episode of our series, Robert Durst in His Own Words, we dive into Bob's relationship with guns. Over the years, Robert Durst has made numerous public statements about firearms, and yet those statements offer insights that you might not glean from listening to his defense attorneys or even from watching the mega-hit documentary series, The Jinx. So we're going to spend the next 15 minutes or so looking into Bob's special relationship with firearms. As he has in previous episodes of the series, actor David Kelsey will read Robert Durst's words. We'll begin our deep dive right after the break. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In his current state, it may be difficult to picture Robert Durst holding or shooting a gun. Elderly and frail, he sits behind the defense table in a wheelchair. His hearing is so diminished, even with hearing aids, he must rely on a closed caption device to follow courtroom proceedings. He requires assistance for many things, from basic mobility to changing his catheter bag. It would be easy to project this image into the past and wonder, how could this person have ever fired a gun? That would be a mistake. The man accused of murdering Susan Berman in 2000 and found guilty of dismembering his Galveston neighbor, Morris Black, in 2003, was strong and healthy, a runner. Durst's commentary makes clear his comfort and familiarity with firearms, painting a picture of very convenient panic when faced with Morris Black holding a gun. In this episode, we assemble some of Durst's on-the-record statements and present them into a narrative form, read by actor David Kelsey, in order to trace Durst's lifelong relationship with firearms. I did like guns when I was a kid. I remember that. About the only sport I was ever good at was target sports, archery, and shooting. When I first started spending time in Texas in the early 90s, I had leased a farm for camping and target shooting, a ranch in Tyler. I bought a revolver and a pistol, a 9mm pistol that I was arrested with, and one of the two revolvers that I was arrested with in Pennsylvania. What started out as an innocent interest in target shooting as a youth developed into a tool of control as an adult. Ann and Kevin Doyle, 
Neighbors of Bob and Kathy's on Riverside Drive in Manhattan told detectives investigating Kathy Durst's disappearance that Kathy had once climbed around an outdoor balcony to flee an attack from Bob. Kathy told the Doyles that Bob had beat her and that she was afraid he might shoot her. The threat that Durst would pull out a gun seemed to be always present. After Robert Durst's violent assault of an acquaintance, Peter Schwartz, at a party in the Durst apartment in 1981, Kathy's first thought was to warn Schwartz that Durst had a gun. Due to Robert Durst's penchant for disguises and pseudonyms, as well as the United States patchwork system of state-level gun laws, it is difficult to say exactly how many guns Robert Durst has owned and when he owned them. There is public record of Durst purchasing a 9mm semi-automatic pistol in Tyler, Texas in 1993. He testified to buying a revolver around the same time. Ballistics show that neither of these guns were used to murder Susan Berman. Late in 2000, there was a lot of hype about, for the first time, they were going to be able to make guns out of titanium, and they would be very light. So I ordered a 38 titanium revolver at the beginning of 2001. That was the revolver I was arrested with in Pennsylvania, and that was more or less the same time that the handgun permits, the concealed carry, whatever it's called, started becoming available. So I applied for the permit. The application process takes a long time. In Texas, you have to send stuff in, and I think that they do some kind of thorough check before they would let you take the class. I actually went through the application process up until taking the one-day course. And when I got halfway through the one-day course, I got bored with the whole thing and left. I was sitting there in this full day, an eight-hour class, a, a whole day, a Saturday, and just wanting to leave and couldn't figure out what I was doing this for or anything. Durst's disinterest in protocol and rules not only led him to abandon his handgun permit application, but helped land him in federal prison as well. After his arrest for the murder of Morris Black in Texas, Durst was released on $250,000 bond. He promptly fled the state. When he was arrested in Pennsylvania weeks later, Durst was in possession of two 38 caliber revolvers. He was also a fugitive who had crossed state lines, bringing federal charges. Though Durst was ultimately acquitted of Morris Black's murder in November of 2003, the acquittal did not eliminate the federal gun charges. In October 2004, once Durst was released from Texas custody where he'd been serving time for jumping bail and tampering with evidence for dismembering Morris Black's body, he pled guilty to the transportation and possession of a firearm while a fugitive under indictment. Durst agreed to serve nine months on the gun charges in a federal prison and two years of supervised release. He ultimately served five and a half months at federal correctional institution Fairton in New Jersey and was then released on parole, returning to Texas in July of 2005. Bob did not seem to learn from this experience. When he was arrested in New Orleans 10 years later for the murder of Susan Berman, Bob was in possession of the 38 caliber titanium revolver. The result was a felony weapon possession charge in Louisiana as convicted felons such as Durst are prohibited from possessing firearms. When you buy a gun, a new gun anyway, it comes in a big plastic box and there are tools and brushes and things to clean it with. 
And there's a very detailed manual kind of thing that I suspect that gunsmiths would use. And about all I would ever do with a gun was to do what they call a field strip, where you would pull back the slide and you ended up with two big pieces. And pretty much the manufacturers don't recommend that you do any more than that. If there's anything else that needs to be done, you take it to a gunsmith or send it back to the factory. Well, the first or second day that I had brought it home, Morris had read and studied that manual at great length, and he had gotten a screwdriver, and he was proceeding to take it apart. When they show the gun broken down, there's a zillion little pieces, springs and screws and stuff like that. And I saw that he had two little something or others out there, and I insisted he put them right back. He wanted to take it all apart, but I refused to let him do that. Though each was unconventional and difficult in their own way, by all measures, Morris Black and Bob Durst were friends. Durst, a millionaire in hiding, had come to Galveston disguised as a mute woman in order to avoid New York prosecutors. His neighbor Black was cantankerous and broke, yet the two would go to art nights in Galveston and occasionally to the conservative Jewish temple in town. They frequented the local library to use the internet and went to Walmart or Hastings Entertainment to loiter and read magazines for free. And they would shoot guns. I told Morris that I went to shooting ranges in Houston a couple of times. I invited him to come with me. He said he didn't like shooting ranges and his reasons for not liking them were pretty much the same as mine. It's very sterile, the target. Yeah, it's, it's up there. There's people next to you making a lot of noise, shooting their guns. And he told me that there was a place out on Pelican Island that he had gone to one day and that he had saw people shooting there and it was very safe and far away from any people and buildings and there was a high 10-foot high cliff or steep hill right in back of it so you knew the bullet was not going to go far. Well, everything he said was exactly right. There were no people, there were no buildings and there was water on one side and a high dirt wall, if you will, on the other side. So we shot in the direction of the dirt wall. Bullet had to go into the dirt wall. I insisted on going just at daybreak. It would be less likely that there would be people out there. And we went out there and it looked just like it was supposed to look. And I had taken the 9mm with me and we stopped the car and got out. The 9mm was much bigger, more stable gun. The 38s were really very light revolvers, convenient to carry, but not, you couldn't, not target pistols to say the least. I went and tore a page out of a magazine and tacked it up to a telephone pole. And I loaded a magazine, put the magazine in the gun and I went and shot three or four bullets at the, at the target. I don't remember if, I don't know if I used all the bullets in the one magazine and I reloaded it or if I just gave it to him to finish shooting what was in the magazine. He aimed it at the magazine picture I hung up on the telephone pole. But rather than just shooting one bullet and bringing it back down, take a bead on what you are doing to shoot at again and 
aiming it. He threw bullets, and it threw him back. He knew about pulling the slide back and the safety and all those issues, but he went bang, 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 and, and didn't seem to appreciate the kickback from the 9mm. I said, stop, stop, stop. The gun was out of control. He was just pulling the trigger out of control of the gun. Just about when I got the words out of my mouth, the gun jammed. And he brought it back down, and I said something or else, and he turned toward me, and now the gun was pointing at me, and I yelled, point it down, point it down. As soon as he pointed the gun down, I went over, and he gave me the gun, and I took the magazine out, and I fixed the jam. The bullet went down to the sand, and he right away picked it up, and I said, you can't shoot them once they get dirty, and throw it away. And so he threw it someplace or other, and I said I was uncomfortable with him and the 9mm, but that if he wanted, when I was in Houston sometime, I would buy a 22 target shooting pistol. He right away said that that would be something he would like. On August 30th, 2001, Robert Durst purchased a Ruger 22 caliber target pistol. Less than a month later, Morris Black was shot and killed with the same gun. In Durst's version of events, Black became aggressive when he found out Durst was planning to leave Galveston. When Bob entered his apartment and found Black there the night of September 28, 2001, the two argued and Black grabbed the 22 from its hiding spot in the disused oven. There was a struggle between the two men, the 22 pistol went off, and Black died. According to the prosecution in both the Galveston and the Los Angeles trial, Durst killed Black because he had learned of Durst's true identity. What both parties agree upon is that Durst then dismembered Morris Black and threw his body parts into Galveston Bay. Long a part of Bob's life, guns were also a part of Bob's exit plan. I cannot live in jail and I cannot live in hiding. In my apartment in New Orleans, I had a gun to kill myself with. To assemble Robert Durst's dialogue in this episode, the Crime Story team drew on a range of case files, courtroom testimony, and interviews conducted with Robert Durst. For a complete list of materials used, please visit crimestory.com. In our next installment, we'll look at Robert Durst's time in Northern California and the rumors of his involvement in the disappearance of another missing woman. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1, and head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. This episode was written and co-produced by Alexis Bartolo. Passages from Robert Durst's written and spoken comments were read by actor David Kelsey. Post-production and editing was handled by Jody O'Keefe. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.